This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Interesting uh, conversation. Matt, if you could just go to a therapist, uh, or if you didn't need to go to the therapist, you could just do it yourself. We're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. <laughs> Ben's like, yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, a, just a really good listener? Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out. Oh, it's it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, there's, there's these signs, okay? I call them, you don't need to just always be, I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after, uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and I was certified in you know life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how, to, how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, um, respirations. If you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs and then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why, what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs, right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping and instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion, I look for misunderstanding, and I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person, right? So if, if, my, if my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever... And I can't find it, and I've got to go use it right now. That's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. 
People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If, I'm, if, if I have a, a person that's, that's quiet and, and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? <laughs> I mean, last year's example of, of this same you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships, emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about, a little coach's corner for you right there. Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. Near impossible. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Really, the art of stillness, it's something we don't, we just don't do. And you know what else I I really liked about Pico in general is he's just, he's really approachable. He's, uh, one of the things he he didn't tell is a story that he was in um, Japan on business and while he was there, he just saw such a different world, and he and he would be, he was called. He basically felt like he was called. He saw these temples, he saw um, little wooden homes, all of these incredible things. He wanted to to make a part of his life. So he really he went to New York, quit, did did all these things, and within a week, I believe, he was back, um, or relatively quickly, he was back to Japan. Now, when he got to Japan, he decided he's just going to go join a monastery. So he went to a temple, joined a monastery, and you're like, oh, wow, what a guy, Pico. And then a week later, he quit. He's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> These people, all they do is they do a lot of cleaning. And he didn't realize how much cleaning was involved in you know, monastic <laughs> commitments. And so he moved about a block or two away from the monastery in this small little place apartment. And that's where he, he started his life and then ended up creating and finding his wife and her children. And then ended up creating again, a fairly monastic life he felt, um, but was able to offer more of himself um, than just instead of just the cleaning. So anyway, powerful thing. And where I, you know, a lot of people are, aren't prone to go, you know, to a monastery or aren't prone to go do meditation or whatever yoga, But let me just suggest where you might want to create some stillness is in some conversations in your life. What if we could just be more still and um, in, in listening and in hearing what people are saying? What if we just allowed more space in our talk, our conversations, so that everything wasn't always about, um, you know, me needing to compete, me needing to run away, me needing to argue, me needing to entertain you. So try just with your family, with your kids, with your spouse, creating, um, just creating peace, creating a space. Because I, I feel strongly that we need 
we need to learn to just be still in our thoughts and allow um, other people to influence us more. We are so into trying to convince and convert everyone to our specific way of thinking that we sometimes don't even allow that spirit to come in. And that, that spirit, by the way, is is the definition of inspiration is where the spirit is inside, is coming from within. And if you truly want to inspire somebody, sometimes the best way to do that is to just shut your flapper, <laughs> not to be rude, but shut your mouth and allow your words, allow your just sensitivity, allow your emotion, allow the peace to do the talking. And sometimes you'll find out it's a much better communicator than you ever will be. Uh, Have you ever heard the quote that says, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. So maybe the stillness that Pico's trying to teach us can come from just being the person that we need to be and and being the person we need to be in the way we need to be it, in the space we need to be it, at the right time we need to be it. It's, it's That's the convergence, I think, of spirituality, where all of a sudden everything we are in the right moment, at the right time, it can converge and we're an open, you know, vessel, willing to be and do what we need to be and do in any space. I know that sounds all foo-foo-y, but the reality is, think about your greatest moments. The One of the greatest moments of my life where I felt that spirit the most and stillness the most would be a baby being born. And it's pretty chaotic, right? Then there's that peace, that stillness. When everyone goes quiet and the baby's there and all you do is you just hold your baby. And that... Ah, now you can breathe. And then you obviously you've got to count the fingers and the toes because you don't, you know, you got to make sure you got everything. But the peace is there. And so I think in our lives we'll we'll feel that a lot more. I also think that peace, I think I'm, I believe in God and I think he wants you to feel peace. And interestingly, nothing seems to kind of create more, you know, almost anti-God than just complete chaos and overwhelming um just confusion. So turn some things off. Test it. Test Pico's advice today. Test it. I dare you. Just create space. You dare do 15 minutes? What if you just in your marriages committed to listening to each other for 15 minutes a night? Oh, really? Oh, jeez. I mean, I love her, but don't make me listen to her for 15 minutes. Come on! You're not going to get to find out who she really is if you never listen. And if you're going to try to, you know, influence your partner to listen, you might want to make sure that when you're talking, it's not always negative or it's not always, you know, complaining or whatever. We've all got something to do. So ask yourself, where are you going to go implement the lessons of Pico Iyer? Also forgot to tell you, his website is Pico, P-I-C-O, Iyer, E, oh, this is going to be hard. Pico Iyer Journeys.com. P I C O I Y E R Journeys.com. Pico I Y E R Journeys.com. Pico Iyer Journeys.com. Thanks for joining us, folks. We're going to take a break, come back, and take off on our next topic. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio.
In the 1960s, truck driving was a great profession. It had benefits and fairly compensated workers for that time. Uh, However, since then, there's been a dramatic shift. Truck drivers are now expected to work long hours for little to no pay. In one case, a California truck driver took home 67 cents as a paycheck after paying for the gas and insurance and the lease payments on the truck. In fact, there are a lot of companies that are getting uh, some pretty good money actually leasing the trucks to these to the truck drivers and um, also uh, training them and doing the the education. And yet it's still kind of a dog-eat-dog world for the truck driver. So Steve Vichelli, a former truck driver and author of the book The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream, is here with us this morning to talk about some research he did as a Ph.D. uh, student, I believe, where he went out and and basically – was a truck driver for six months and then uh, gleaned a lot of other information. Steve is a professor, an economic sociologist, and a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. Steve Vichelli, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, Matt. It's great to be with you. I Okay. I grew up in a family where my grandfather owned a trucking company. It was mainly more of a mining and ore hauling truck business. But uh, so I have an incredible uh, respect and reverence for truck drivers. The interesting thing I'm finding out is it seems like the it's it's more about, you know, independent contracting now in the trucking world. And the truck drivers themselves are really carrying probably an undue burden when it comes to the business side of trucking. Well, there are still a lot of good truck driving jobs left out there. So, you know, some of those rock haulers and and other local drivers and some of the, you know, folks working for Walmart and other private companies can still make a good wage and and have a, you know, uh, time at home with their families, et cetera. But in the -the over-the-road segment of the industry, which is those drivers who are driving very long distances from one dock to another in a random pattern around the country oftentimes – those drivers can spend sometimes 80, 90 hours a week working. Mm. And oftentimes they're sitting at docks unpaid. They can make less than minimum wage. And then there's a good portion of them now who are relatively new to the industry who get convinced by the company they work for to uh, take on the costs and risks of owning the equipment that they lease from the company they drive for, paying all the expenses. Then those workers can oftentimes work a full week, sometimes 60, 70 hours, and end up not earning anything at all. Ugh. I mean, I, I know what it's like to have a to be an independent contractor where you're fighting for your own food. But in the end, this is, I guess, this is, takes it almost to a new level because um, these companies, they, they work, they hire them as independent contractors, right? But they also then lease them the truck. They train them. They give them the dream. They even might uh, line them up with jobs, but the the paying for the gas, paying for the lease, paying for their meals, all of that has to be managed by the trucker. Yeah, and there's a, you know, so I've worked as an independent contractor, an increasing number of Americans are working as independent contractors every year. And, you know, there are certainly opportunities out there that, you know, make that attractive because you have control over what work you're doing or when you work, you get more flexibility. Maybe, maybe you can go out and sell your services to a number of different, you know, employer, potential employers uh, for a higher wage than you could get as a, as a full-time employee for someone. The problem for these drivers is that, as you were saying, they're, 
They're also getting the equipment from that company, and then that company most often is providing all the work that that driver does, and that driver is not allowed to work for anyone else. Mm. And so they're really captured or captive to the, you know, whatever work that company can provide. And typically the law says, and I'm not a lawyer, but I've, I've been studying this quite a bit, um, typically the law says someone who's in that situation where they can only do the work that's provided by one company right. is is usually in an employment situation. Yeah, they're not an independent. You know, should have minimum wage yeah. at least. No, it's so true. And because, um, I mean, it's easy to hire someone as an independent contractor. But if you're giving them all the jobs and they have to do it your way and they don't have all of the other freedoms, then they are they are trapped. Talk about um, – because this, this used to be kind of the American, you know, middle class, strong middle class job, wasn't it? Where the long haul trucker could go out, spend a week, come back every weekend, provide for the family. And it seemed to be a lot more consistent. Yeah. So even long haul truck drivers before the industry was deregulated in the late 70s did pretty well. And, and one of the reasons that they did well was that there wasn't, a, there wasn't a lot of supply of these kinds of trucks that could go randomly point to point. Um, but there was also uh, union control over a lot of truck driving. And so the Teamsters Union had organized most truck drivers, including a lot of independent owner-operators who were members, and they really kept rates pretty high. Hmm. Um, and so even owner-operators who were not part of the Teamsters Union benefited from the fact that truck drivers generally got paid really well. Um, and so if we were to adjust for inflation, what truck drivers were making in the 60s and 70s into today's dollars, they'd be making over $100,000 a year, which most people say, well, that's too much. You know, that, that's too much money. <laughs> but you have to really understand what truck drivers give up in order to do this job and the number of hours that they work. Most truck drivers are working the equivalent of two full-time jobs oh. or more. Um, and they're away from their family. So you say, well, if you were working 40 hours a week and you know, only saw your family once every couple of weeks, would that be worth $50,000? And, you know, I, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, it's a tough job. You're living out of a truck, you know, for weeks at a time, you so, know, missing the birthdays, missing the time at home. Well, and I've seen, um, I mean, I've just heard a lot of stories when the economy was down. I had friends that, I mean, architects that were making a lot of money that couldn't do it anymore and got went and got their certification and then went and hit the road. And it's there really is a science, and you they made really good money, and they went even as a couple. They were so they had two drivers in the truck at one time, which you know gave them a whole other list of possibilities. They made great money, but there's a science to it, and you have to be really diligent and vigilant and smart to really make the hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, but yeah, the, the toll it must take on families, plus the fact that if they're if they're working ninety hours. Of, of working a week, um, that's scary, too, because they're on the road, right? And I mean, mistakes yeah. could go up. I mean, just I can't imagine, and I've seen it a million times, a long-haul driver pulled over on the side of the road waiting for the mechanic to come. And what that must be doing to his bottom line and knowing that he's going to have to pay this mechanic out of his pocket, and yet he's now going to be late on the deadline and miss his next pickup. Yeah, so those folks who, you know, are actually going out, finding their own uh, loads, you know, doing, doing the science behind it, as you put it, which is, which is a good way to think about it. You know, they're really trying to see where the market has some extra fat in it that can be profitable, because a lot of times there's nothing to earn there except maybe a basic wage. Um, you know, there's so much competition. So you have to know, 
you know, where's the freight coming from going to, you know, you don't want to take freight from, you know, Chicago down to Phoenix and then get stuck there because there's a lot of freight that goes in but doesn't come out of that area. Um, So you might have a great rate going in but not coming out. So you really got to understand the market and you've got to have the ability to capture that profit when when it's there. But there's a lot of risk. So, you know, you blow out a tire you're late on a load, um, you know, you have a problem there. You also have maybe a $500 expense, $1,000 expense. You know, that can ruin you for a week. If you lose a transmission or something like that, then you have a much bigger problem. You might be down for weeks at a time and have a $10,000 bill. Mm. And the margins really aren't large enough for a lot of truckers to be able to overcome that risk easily without it making, you know, basically a huge debt in their, in their annual income. Is it um, because one of the things I thought was fascinating, and I guess this is where you got the research. But were, were you a truck driver before then, Steve? No, I was a I was a graduate student, in, <laughs> just a grad uh, student in sociology. And then you and then you got did, in the truck and started to learn to drive. And did you do that with the intention of just doing the research? I did. I did. How yeah. um, then, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's a really yeah. cool way to. To experience your what you're studying, right? You in, you immersed yourself. Oh, I knew absolutely that I had to do the job because I I had talked to enough people to know that you know trucking was a very unique job and experience, and that without really being on the road and you know understanding what it was like to live out of the truck, work out of the truck for weeks at a time, um, I really couldn't ask really good questions in the interviews that came later. Later, I did about 100 interviews with truck drivers and then dozens more with managers and owners. Mm. And, you know, it's a unique lifestyle. It's a unique kind of job. Um, And I knew I had to actually go out on the road and experience that. And, you know, even though I ended my time, as I say in the book, as, you know, pretty much still a rookie, six months in, you know, I did end up being late to the birthday parties or missing the anniversary dinners, mm. you know, things like that enough to realize that, you know, this is a really tough job that people are doing, you know, day after day. And, and interviewees actually sometimes ask me, you know, could you, did you like the job? I said, you know, there's things about it that I liked. Um, I didn't mind the lack of routine and I liked being able to see new places and do new things. But you know, the time on the road and the cost of that, that particularly to your family and social life, friends, um, would be really hard to sustain over, over time. We're speaking with Steve Vichelli, who is a former uh, truck driver, really, by research, and um, and the author of the book, The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of, Amer- of the American Dream. He is a, an economic uh, sociologist and lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also a senior fellow at Kleinman Center for Energy Policy and Fox Family Pavilion Scholar. Um, Steve, when you – what is it that we don't um, – I mean – is this is there a future for long haul trucking? I mean, we need it like desperately, right? There's no there's not a lot of good ways to get our materials throughout the country and dispersed throughout the country, except it seems like with this economic model of working 90 hours and basically making minimum wage, it's not sustainable. Yeah, well, demand for trucking is going to continue to go up. We are seeing some really big shifts, and, and this is something that I think the, the public and policymakers really need to pay some sustained attention to in the coming years. 
We've, we're seeing increasing freight demand, but we're seeing some changes in the way that stuff moves, partly because of e-commerce and, and things like Amazon and, you know, fewer um, goods moving more often in smaller shipments with more time-sensitive um, <clears throat> sort of contracts. And this is going to change what the job looks like. It's also going to change um, because of the development of self-driving trucks. And that's really the the big question right now on everyone's minds about, you know, is trucking a good job to go into and, and is it, is it long-term going to be sustainable? Well, the, the trucking industry has struggled for many years to get enough workers into the kinds of jobs that I've been describing. As I yeah. said, when we first started, there are some really good jobs left in the trucking industry for sure, where you have regular routes in your home regularly and you get paid really well. Um, and those jobs are, you know, that, that you have to go through the over the road, you know, bad jobs typically to get to those good jobs. You have to you get get your time. Experience. Yeah. Yep. So the big question right now is, you know, what's going to happen with e-commerce? We're probably going to see more local jobs that could be good jobs. Um, and with the self-driving trucks, which are typically going to be able to do, it looks like long haul driving, we're going to see a decline in those bad over the road jobs. Um, and so, the question is whether or not these new local jobs that are that are you know coming uh, and they're going to grow in number, whether they're going to be good jobs or not, and that that is a real I think policy question in many places, because we have drivers working at ports and other places that might look like what these jobs are going to be, and they're really struggling with a lot of the same issues that you have in over the road. So we have some good local jobs and we have bad local jobs, and we have to figure out I think how we ensure that these new jobs are, you know, good jobs where the trucks are safe and the workers are working reasonable hours and they're not, you know, um, and that they're safe and things like that. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine, I mean, this ever stopping because there's just, I mean, but if it is automated and self-driving, then uh, it's a whole different world. Um, we're speaking with uh, Steve, um, Steve Vichelli, and he's he's talking to us today um, about the, d- the decline of the American dream and the big rig, kind of the long haul truckers and really the lives they're living. It's it's not it's not even what we we would we would think it's like. Um, there's a lot of stress, 90 hour work weeks. They're not able to get home like uh, you would think. And there's a, an enormous science to the whole thing. Just really for many of them, just to maybe just barely be breaking even. It's, uh, it may not be sustainable. And honestly, it's probably leading to other issues as well in our society. Uh, we've got to figure out a way to support um, this part of our economy and this part of our uh, of America. We'll continue the journey and continue the discussion with Steve Vichelli. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We are talking the big rig world and the life uh, driving a big rig truck across the country. Long haul uh, really is it's it may be in trouble because how do you keep paying people really minimum wage, put all of the pressure on them to produce? Um, it's it's a lot of pressure and 90 plus hours uh, of working may mean they're getting minimum wage. They're carrying all of the risk. 
And then looming overhead is this idea that it all may go away with uh, automated automated trucks. According to the White House, in fact, uh, the White House released a report in December predicting that 1.3 million to 1.7 million heavy and tractor-trailer trucking jobs could disappear because of automation in the, in the near future. That's 80 to 100 percent of all truck driving jobs. And to here to talk about it is Steve Vichelli. Steve is an economic sociologist and lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of the book The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream. He himself spent uh, some time in uh, the trucks doing research, interviewing about 100 uh, or so truck drivers and companies to understand what's going on in the industry. Steve, thank you again for your time. It's my pleasure, Matt. What do you think, um, I mean, as, as the White House is now coming out, talking about the, the, you know, the automation of truck driving, um, how far down the road is that, and what kind of stir is it actually creating amongst the truck drivers? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a matter of debate among the experts and even those working on the technology, how, how long it's going to take to get some on the road. There are some companies that say within you know, a year or two they may have, um, have some trucks working. And these trucks are going to be um, very limited in what, where they can go and what they can do at first. So it's going to be a relatively slow rollout of this technology. But we could see them on the road within the next three to five years. You could see trucks actually operating over the highway portion of the driving, delivering freight. Mm. I mean, and you can see that where – I mean, I live in Utah, and we make long trips through Nevada, through Montana, through Idaho. I mean, it wouldn't be that strange to see an automated truck driving on those long freeways. That That is where you're going to see them operating first. And so, um, you know, there was, a, there was a delivery made last fall in November in, uh, in Colorado where a company called Otto, which is now owned by Uber, delivered a, um, a load of Budweiser beer. And the, the truck drove without any driver behind the wheel for 120 miles. And it was in a controlled setting yeah. uh, with, you know, escorts and, and early, early in the morning. But the truck was able to drive 120 miles without any intervention from uh, from the driver who was in the back of the of the truck in the sleeper berth. Well, you could actually see too that it, that might actually make a really good pairing. Having a truck driver with an automated system, then the 90 hours seems doable, and it's just more managed by a driver. But I guess eventually there will be no need for a driver. So the. Um there are different ways that people think this might play out. My own personal idea is that there's going to be kind of staging areas, uh, which is what some of the companies say as well, where you're going to have these trucks get on, um, you know, have a driver, human driver, bring them to an interstate exit. And then the truck is going to be able to pilot itself to the next exit where, where a human driver will, will take over. And that's mainly because the urban and local driving environments are just so much more complex. Yeah in terms of, you know, pedestrians and kids and all kinds of, you know, even just stoplights and things like that that you have to worry about. Um, and human drivers are very good at understanding what other humans are going to do, and computers really aren't, aren't there yet. Mm. What is the sociologist in you? Um, what did you learn about the psyche, the mindset of a truck driver? Who are these drivers? And what drove them, uh, no pun intended, to get into the trucking business and are they losing hope? Are they becoming more cynical? Well, so there's a wide range of uh, 
of experiences and ideas that you know that uh, truckers have. Um, <clears throat> so there are there are folks who have been in the industry a long, long time, very experienced, um, understand everything that I wrote in, in, in my book, for sure. In the beginning, I say I'm, I was actually a research assistant to these more experienced truck drivers on most of the points. But it's an industry that has a lot, a lot of turnover. And so it is one of the first places that people go looking for work when they're displaced. Maybe it's because they were in manufacturing and the job got automated or shipped overseas. Um, or maybe they used to work construction and they can physically no longer do that job anymore. And trucking offers a place where you can still make, you know, the uh, a good income, forty to fifty thousand dollars, you know, within a year or two of being trained. Um, and so you get a wide range of people who are who are moving into the industry because they've lost another job, and that they don't stay very long. Most of those folks, but you end up with a really wide range of you know reasons that people get into the industry and experiences that that they have. Um, and that's one of the things that allows these, these, um, employers, I call them predatory employers to be able to convince workers to take on these situations that are really not very good for them. So most of the folks who become independent contractors, for instance, are relatively new to the industry. Um, and the employers take advantage of the fact that they don't have a lot of background information, um, to convince them to buy the truck. Mm. Uh, it's, I mean, then all of a sudden you're, you are, you have this lease with a major payment that needs to be made. It is your livelihood. It becomes your part of like, it's almost like a house payment for you on wheels. And, uh, then you just have to keep grinding it to get your lease payment done. In fact, you're saying there's some people that they're paying for gas, even though they know they're going to lose money just simply to be able to make a lease payment. They know they're not going to be able to take any income out of it. And just all they're doing is doing it to keep the lease alive. Oh, absolutely. There was there were periods when uh, I was doing interviews during the Great Recession when there were drivers who maybe had had a truck for a year or two. And it made a decent wage, not as much maybe as they would have made in a good employee situation. But they've been making payments on that truck for a year or two. The recession hit. They didn't want to lose that truck. And so they would haul loads just to be able to make those truck payments, some of them even taking you know, income from a spouse, um, from a spouse's income or something like that, to buy that fuel just to maintain the overhead costs of operating that truck. Now, week to week, even drivers today, with when things are pretty good for trucking right now, um, can still have weeks where they where they don't make any take home income. They they just pay the expenses on that truck, and maybe they'll make some income next week and decent income the week after that. But then they'll go back at some point to uh, you know lots of sitting at docks, et cetera, for a mm. week, and they'll just barely make that those payments on the truck. Sometimes they end up you know working sixty, seventy hours and owing the company that they're working for money after all those deductions are taken out. Well, and and then you just think it's an industry where all you have to do is drive a truck. But no, you're a business person. You're a person that has to know how to do business. You need to think almost finances. You need to know how to manage your your income and your your uh, your your bank statements. You need to know how to do business. What advice do you give to people? Uh, that might be thinking about getting into long haul trucking or the trucking business, and and is there a safer way to uh, to enter into the process? 
Well, absolutely, you need to uh, you need to learn about the industry fully, and and the best way to do that is to talk to more experienced drivers and folks who've been who are doing that work that you're interested in. And and I met some drivers who were doing that when I did the interviews. The the ones who were really doing their homework were spending the time to talk to more experienced drivers at truck stops, um, et cetera. Now you have to be careful because some drivers get referral bonuses for talking other drivers into. Uh, into these uh, relationships, though, the companies will pay them for every driver that they convince to, mm. to sign on with the company. Um, but talking to more experienced drivers is, is, is number one. And this is changing a lot now because of the Internet. So when I started the research, um, I started it in 2005, and I've sort of watched the industry evolve over that, that, that time. The amount of information that's available online now for drivers has increased unbelievably, and drivers are increasingly wired and, and paying attention to what's happening on, you know, blogs and things like that. And those can be a great resource. If you're thinking about signing on with a company, you know, there's, there's probably a, a chat room or a, or blog out there that talks about what it's like to work for that company. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you, Steve Vichelli. Uh, thank you for your great insight. The name of the book is the big rig and uh, trucking and the decline of the American dream. Really, it's uh, this is part of this is part of America when you think about it, and we need to take care of those people that are that are moving the goods, that are making it so we can actually keep our standard of living the way it is. They're not just throwing rocks at your windshields; <laughs> they're out there making stuff happen and really enabling America. So let's look out for them. This is uh, the Matt Townsend Show. We'll continue the journey to help you be the best in the world and be the good in the world right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality. So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and uh, I, teach a, I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give um, like adults about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm. You're rocking your baby to sleep and you just feel love and peace and just, you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is, and, and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did, Spirit is is the essential form of who we all are, and every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds, and we have bodies. The mind, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth, and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby, and that baby's you know two months old or five months old or ten months old, and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. 
And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue-eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a, a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body and my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling, you know, body, mind or spirit, Then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I what if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit... You're already moving to spirit because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit, right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's it thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. 
Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico, and we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West... You remember the Dust Bowl, you know, in the Midwest, um, the Depression? Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean, a problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. Your, you know, economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember, and and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word, or two, or actually three, uh, hope, and he, he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act, and I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um, You also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways, But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope. Right. The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our, our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, we've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, And with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. And this demands management and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some 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 choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. 
And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. <sighs> I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is, is a really sacred thing. You have, the, you have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment and you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can, you can be a good steward. So just remember those words: steward, agent, options, right, pathways, and hope. It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh, West will make it through the drought. Let's just let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the coach's corner. We're going to take a break. More on the Matt Townsend show next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. With uh, President Obama's town hall meeting on gun safety, it just kind of shows us again how difficult it is to create uh, a, a really open conversation on such a polarized topic as guns. So I wanted to talk about how we can learn to persuade people, how we can influence others, um, and get people to believe in your cause without polarizing it. Because you, you can't have a gun, a discussion about guns, it seems like, without it moving very quickly to the extremes, as it does on so many other issues in our culture, in our world. Um, for example, on terrorism and and the discussions of and war and going you know to Iraq and um, and abortion, but but in the, in the end we we look at the politicians they're extreme they're going to be extreme they have to be extreme they they have to placate and and do what they've got to do to their to get elected, but we don't right so we we are the people that are eventually going to elect these politicians and eventually are going to actually create the change like state senator Todd Weiler we just talked to um here's here's my view the power is is really in our hands to change these debates these discussions um we can change them in our local you know meetings on the local level but we can also just change them in our conversations around the dinner table so there's power and in and an ability for each of us to persuade people to be more open-minded, but you gotta you gotta kind of follow some principles. I wouldn't just say like Trump did. You know, Hillary, if she did, believes that guns are so dangerous, then her security team needs to lose all their guns. Okay, that I mean, it's a great point, Don. You, you nailed it. Donald Trump said that. The same is also true. If guns are so safe, Donald then everybody in your meetings and rallies should have their guns by their side. Now, can you imagine a three, ten, or three to 10,000-person rally with Donald Trump with 10,000 guns in the room? See, that's just ludicrous. It's crazy because we can't trust the few. There's just a few in the room 
that can't be trusted. And there's just a few in the room that the security guards around Hillary Clinton are protecting Hillary from. So if you notice, we're not fighting an argument of everyone. We're fighting an argument of just the few. But those are the things we're not talking about. We're not talking about just those few. And we're always trying to protect our rights. So listen, here's some principles for how to persuade other people to believe in more in in your cause. First, you got to know what you believe. Know what you believe, but don't just know what you believe because, you know, you, you've got the talking points from, um, you know, the NRA or from, you know, the Democratic anti-gun movement. Know what you believe truly. What are the principles, for example, that of why you want to have a gun in your home? Is it safety? What else is it? Is it, is it hobby to go hunting? Is it collection? You have so many different reasons, but why do you believe in what you believe? What are your principles for why you believe in pro-life or pro-choice? Understand your beliefs. And don't just understand them because somebody talked to you about them. I, for example, um, I I was very pro-death penalty for a long time. And now I'm just kind of I'm neutral. <laughs> I've moved to neutral by simply reading and studying more about how many innocent people are also being killed. And, you know— it scares me that we could make mistakes on the death penalty, and it's moved me back to center um, when I may have been more extreme in one way or another. But it came because I really dug deep to find out, is that something I actually believe, or is that just one of the things that my party believes, right? So know what you believe, and before you try to convince everyone else of something, be informed and know what you believe, and please get more informed than just the local media, right, or the national media. Or just this one position. Understand both positions of the argument. Another thing you could do is show passion, not obsession. Nothing on earth is a better attractor than someone that's passionate. But also nothing is a greater repellent than a person that is an obsess- that's obsessed. So the guy that has to show up at a parade with, a, with an automatic rifle because he can, that's obsessive. That's not healthy. And it's, it's also not respectful to others. You can – if your obsession crushes everyone else's respect of others, then you're in trouble. You can be passionate about your guns and highly informed, but you don't need to become extreme. Moderation. Moderation in all things. The next rule is be the billboard. What I mean by that is very simply we are always the best demonstration of what we believe in. We always are the the one. We're the demonstrator. We're the best model. We're the best billboard of what we believe in. So if you want to influence people, then be the billboard. And the interesting thing about like billboard marketing is it's really about putting it up there and you want to keep your billboard up for a while or a long time because it's repetition, repetition, repetition. When people see that you're an open-minded person and informed about your views and able to hear other people's views – that billboard shows that you're trustworthy on this topic. If you could start showing that you're open-minded to hearing everyone else's opinion, which to me that town hall started to do for the president, I think, and it's why I think it would be powerful for the NRA to show that they're open-minded to hearing as well, um, then we could have some powerful discussions. But we are always the billboard. So if you really want to influence another human, be open to what others are saying. And then last but not least, to persuasion – Always think about the people, not the persuasion. 
the people are what matters. And in the end, it's going to be the people that will make the decisions. It will be the people that will will facilitate and, and make it easier for you to to have the, you know, your goals achieved, or it will be the people that will fight against it. We have so many people in our culture, in our country today, fighting um, each other because no one's talking or thinking about the actual people involved. They're just trying to get their point across. Uh, when you hear a story like we heard earlier in the show of a, a, a girl shooting accidentally her sister to death with her father's shotgun that he left out after a hunt, that's a people story. That should move you. That should actually at least make your heart open up a little bit. And you shouldn't just shut that down just so you can go back to your point. Yeah, but he should still have the right to have a gun. Sure, he should. We don't have to be pro-gun or anti-gun. We can be both. It's just the situation and how it impacts the people. Persuasion, folks. Think of people, not persuasion. Be the billboard. Show passion, not obsession. And truly know what you believe. That's how you influence people, not just arguing louder or threatening them with, you know, repercussions. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of my favorite books ever. Hardest book to read I've ever experienced. Like, literally, I would read a page a day. But it was by Martin Buber, um, who was uh, a philosopher. And the book is called I and Thou. It was first published in 1923, but it reminds me of um, the power of a relationship. And he, in the book, uh, Martin Buber teaches that there's there's two ways to kind of orient yourself to other people. As an I-it, meaning I, I'm the I, and you are an it, an object, separate from me. Or I can orient towards you as an I-thou and a thou meaning I'm in a relationship with you that um, that is, is sacred. That's the thou, right? So that's the terminology you'd use to address a god in your prayer perhaps. So when we think about how we deal with the people around us, do you look at people as an it, as a Republican or a Democrat, as a male or a female, as a, a Muslim, a Mormon, a Catholic, a Jew? How do you orient to people? Do you orient by their color? Do you orient by their degree? And uh, Martin Buber talks about the fact that eventually our healthiest relationships are where we see people as a thou, an I-thou relationship, where I revere you, I respect you. And if I, if I see you as a thou, then there's something holy about you. Uh, Emerson used to teach that there's a divine spark inside of each one of us. And that divine spark has to be honored. It has to be upheld, which means I've got to be careful how I talk about you, right? I've got to be careful what I say or I don't say. I need to be willing to listen to what you are saying because you are special. You're not just a thing or an it, which is why our labels in our world, are it's so uh, possibly devastating because the minute I've labeled you, you become an it for me. Even, by the way, with our children, we can make our children an it, an object, because they're our children, right? That's my daughter, and I could end up seeing her as an it instead of a thou. So it's just powerful to start realizing that between each one of us, there's a relationship. And how I look at you depends on how, in the end, I will treat you. 
And wouldn't it be powerful if we could see the divine spark in everyone around us? How would that change the dialogue of our candidates? How would it change the dialogue in our families if we could just see that there's a divinity inside of each and every one of us? Powerful, powerful stuff. That's the Coach's Corner. Fast, but uh, I think profound. We'll take a break. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Religion generally urges people of faith to keep their temper in check. For example, anger-related teachings appear at many different points in the Bible, and most references condemn the emotion. Verses like uh, these, as well as anger's inclusion on the list of seven deadly sins, lead some people to try to avoid anger altogether. But trying to avoid anger is, is probably a losing battle as well. Religious people can draw on their teachings to learn more how to channel their wrath toward a more maybe healthier or worthwhile cause. According to Reverend Elaine Ellis Thomas of St. Paul Memorial Episcopal Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, she is going to be teaching us or giving us some insight in how we can manage our emotion, of our negative emotions especially, um, and really do so in a way that is more aligned to a peaceful, Christ-like behavior. We are so honored to have you. Reverend Elaine, Elaine Ellis Thomas, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is anger is a it's a natural human emotion, right? And and then we right. but we want to oh, we want to be spiritual beings, not just human beings. How how I mean it, this this kind of came to a furor in Charlottesville. So I think it's so powerful your story, your history. Tell us what you what you witnessed in Charlottesville and and what you've learned from it. Well, we've had quite a summer here in Charlottesville, as I'm sure you are aware, yeah. um, starting with, well, it started with the Klan rally on July 8th, although in truth it started back in May when a, a tiki torch-bearing rally was held in what was then Lee Park, um, taking some of us by surprise. We didn't know that that was going to happen. But then the Klan rally on July 8th, and then the so-called alt-right rally, alt rally on mm. August 12th, and it's been an escalating series of episodes in our city where uh, anger and violence and hate have been on display in ways that have shocked, uh, shocked me. I never expected to see um, you know, Nazi uh, swastikas marching across the mm. street from the church where I am. I did not expect to hear young white men yelling blood and soil and Jews will not replace us. Um, our, our clans people dressed in their hoods and their robes so close that I could reach out and touch them. And it was, it's been extraordinary and very, uh, lots of stirs of emotion for all of us who have been on the front lines of trying to stand up to this. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, there are plenty of people who said, if you, if you just leave them alone, they'll go away. It, it will all die down. When in fact, um, I don't know of any religious tradition that claims that you don't stand up to confront evil. Mm -hmm. And so as a person of faith, and many, m most of my colleagues in Charlottesville agree that we needed to stand up as a peaceful, uh, nonviolent presence in the face of this hatred that has come to our town. 
Now, I hasten to add, it didn't just come externally. It rose up as well from Charlottesville. We are a southern city with yeah. a long history. So um, so it's been, it's been difficult. And as I said, there has been lots of anger on display and trying to tease out what you would call righteous or justified anger from just hateful spewing of venom. It can be difficult, but it can also be simple. Um, from where I sit, well, from a psychological perspective, anger is a neutral emotion. It's just an emotion, and what, what you do with it is what, uh, what matters. So from a religious or a Christian standpoint, um, I, I gauge the, the rightness of anger about whether it is directed toward what also angers God. Mm. And from, where, from, from what I saw here in Charlottesville, the anger and the violence uh, was directed against people who were on the margins, against um, uh, African Americans and gays and lesbians and Jews and immigrants and refugees. All of these marginalized peoples are the ones that the Bible consistently lifts up that we are to take care of. And so that, uh, that directs me to believe that standing in opposition to that, that anger uh, that was on display is a bit excuse me, very important. Um, you also had another, another side, you know, our, our uh, current president was hastened to point out that there was, that there were, both sides were at fault, that there was violence on both sides. And I would, um, I would say that that is a false equivalency, yeah. that the people who showed up, the anti-fascists, the anarchists, the um, activists who were who were more demonstrative in their um, approach to confronting the evil and hate in our midst, they actually uh, did a lot to save and protect lives, including lives of my friends. And um, and this city on August 12th, in particular, would have been in much worse shape had they not been here. And they were here standing up for those marginalized and oppressed peoples. Um, so it's it, and it's very difficult for me because I am I I, I claim nonviolence I, I follow a prince of peace um, and that that is a position I realize a position of privilege for me to be able to say that I can I can keep my nonviolent stance at the expense of someone else's needing to be violent on my behalf and that yeah. caused a lot of moral quandary for me over the past few weeks as I tried to come to terms with all of that. Were you, were you, were you out, while you were out, um, kind of uh, uh, what, uh, organizing and out uh, uh-huh. uh, meeting with the people and, and in this, this crazy space, you were wearing your collar. They knew, they could tell that you were a pastor. They could see it. Yeah. And so yeah. what, it, it's got to be so amazing because so many people bring out um, this belief that, you know, it's that they're Christian and God is leading them to this angry movement or this angry uh, pushback um, on on what's happening on diversity and all of these things. And I wonder um, how how is it that we can be so full of anger in the moment and yet still uh, try to hang it on our religious values, our religious beliefs as the driver of this anger. That's, uh, that is the, the crux of the matter right now when, um, when groups of, of evangelical pastors are issuing something like the Nashville Statement, which condemns basically anyone who is not 
a heterosexual um, or celibate uh, human being, um, that that taking certain parts of Scripture and amplifying them at the expense of all of the rest of them. And I think the same thing happens with uh, people who claim uh, some kind of religious basis for white supremacy. Um, there are, and, and white supremacists throughout our history have used the Bible to justify yeah. the actions that they take to oppress people. But um, I, I firmly believe that you have to look at Scripture in its entire context, as well as all that has happened since the ink dried on those on those scrolls uh, so many years ago. Um, you know, we no longer stone people for adultery. Women now do speak in church. We're, we divorce is condemned roundly in the Bible, and yet it is it is um, it has come to come to be one of, you know, it, not quite 50% now, it's, it, the divorce rate is falling. But those things are not routinely condemned by those who want to condemn people based on sexuality or, or some other characteristic. And so it's a real misreading, I think, and misinterpretation of what Scripture tells us, as well as experience tells us over the past uh, 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth. We, we no longer enslave well, we claim that slavery is wrong. We do in many ways, and in many parts of the world, including this country, still enslave people in a variety of ways. Um, so I, I think, again, that you have to uh, wonder whether this anger is being directed towards what angers God. And what, what gets mixed up for me in white supremacist movements so often is that there's a real tinge of, of American exceptionalism mixed in with that, and it's that Eurocentric, uh, our heritage as white people coming into this land and claiming it as our own and, and manifest destiny and all of that, and somehow that patriotism is our religion. And so we believe that, that you know, white men, uh, for the most part, um, uh, established this country, and uh, it, and that's a false narrative as well. It's all a false narrative, but mm. it's what what people seem to hold on to, and then they couch it in terms of God bless America, and this this nation was found on Christian principles, which it wasn't. Um, and and you know that whole idea of fake news is nothing new. People have been claiming false narratives since this country began. Yeah, and it's almost like we need the stories. We need. We we like to just recount the stories instead of um, actually connect to the spirit of it. It seems to me at some point faith is uh, – it's a personal thing which I must feel um, personally and, and I must have my own relationship with God in order to know what angers God. And that that might be, for example, what moved you to go – to be in some of these demonstrations to, to, to kind of push against um, some of these other beliefs. Is it I, – I guess that's part of what I wonder is do we sometimes just cloak ourselves in a philosophy and it doesn't touch our heart? We're not actually converted to the spirit of what is taught in the Bible but more to the image or the facade of a faith or a religious belief. I think that's definitely true that there is not a real internalization of the message of radical discipleship that I as a Christian uh, choose to follow and to which I have devoted my life. And I don't do it perfectly. I'm not condemning yeah, nobody, anyone yeah. here. But, um, but there, is, that there is a sense of, um, of Christianity that's more about sin avoidance, and that's usually behavior-based. You know, if I tell a lie or if I 
smoke or if I steal something or whatever. And that is really, that's just, it is, that's so irrelevant to what the real call to Christian discipleship is, which is to, to preach good news to the poor, as Jesus said in his inaugural address in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, preach good news to the poor and release to the captives and sight to the blind, that it's all about lifting up those who for so long have had no, no voice, no uh, place in society. And, and that continues to this day. There are um, people on the margins, well, not even on the margins, I mean, there are plenty of successful African Americans and gays and lesbians and trans people and women and and immigrants. I mean, so much, immigrants have brought so much uh, richness and wealth and uh, wonder to this country, and yet somehow we still look at them as other, as someone who, as people who are not in, not created in the image of God in which we are all created, and. Um, so it's easy for us to other them, to say that they are something other than we are. And Jesus really broke down those barriers. We are all, we are all one people. And you know, the Apostle Paul probably said it best. There is no no uh, Greek or, or Jew, no slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. We're all one. And we, ha- we haven't embraced that terribly well in uh, so many ways. So that's what urges me to do the work that I do, which is, I, I, in my baptismal covenant, uh, promise to uh, respect the dignity of every human being. And so the challenge for me then becomes, when I'm standing out there confronting hate, how do I still respect the dignity of those people whose, whose very humanity has been distorted by, by what they, the way they've been raised or what they've learned or the ideologies they've embraced? And then how do I pray for them or help them be restored to wholeness and wellness in, in God's eyes? Beautiful, beautiful insight. We're speaking with uh, Reverend Elaine Ellis Thomas, who is, uh, is talking to us from St. Paul's Memorial Church um, at the University of Virginia. She also was there during the demonstrations in Charlottesville and was was really pushing back on the beliefs, the the, the ideology, the ideas um, that um, that we that we should fight for one race, uh, fight for you know one view of life instead of understanding all. And uh, she's just giving us some insight today about how to manage our anger and still live our religion and our faith. And there's a way to do both. And part of it, it sounds like, is getting back the respect. When we come back, we'll continue the journey of finding respect and dignity and really being able to see the divine in everybody on this uh, earth. We, we, uh, we got a long way to go on that, and it's part of the journey. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Uh, we are joined by Reverend Elaine Ellis Thomas, and Elaine is uh, uh, a pastor and um, basically grew up uh, grew up in North Carolina and Tennessee. lived in Oregon for four years. Finally, landed in Pennsylvania before coming to Charlottesville in 2014. And she's here as a as a reverend to teach us really about anger and anger and and how we can still be a religious person and how we manage our anger. 
because there's a lot of it. We don't want to pretend like it doesn't exist and we have differences, but how do we take our faith tradition and and actually have it resonate with Christ and godly behavior instead of turning into just major uh, battles and demonstrations where people are harmed and uh, and anger boils over. Um, Reverend Elaine Ellis Thomas, thank you again for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. What are what are some ways that we can we can actually respect? And dignify the the child of God that we are angry with. How do I how do I have the how do I go through this process of not liking what they're saying, and still remaining faithful to my belief set? Well, I think you have to prepare before you get to the point of that confrontation. And for me, um, and for people of faith, I think that uh, being well uh, grounded in prayer and in Scripture and theology and understanding what our faith teaches us. And then, you know, meditation and contemplation are great ways of, of freeing oneself from, from reactive emotion and, and just sitting with it and handing it over to God. And, and there are times when if my anger or some other emotion is getting the best of me, I recognize that I, can't, I cannot control it, so I just... I, in my prayer, I'll say, God, you're going to have to handle this one mm. for me because it's way beyond me. Um, but I, but you do have to have a center in order to do this work because otherwise you're going to be triggered by um, on, a, on a purely emotional or psychological level by things that are being said to you. On August 12th, the uh, neo-Nazis and white supremacists were hurling horrific insults at women, at men, at mm. anyone who was in their way, and it would be very easy to respond in kind. But if you, are, if you claim a nonviolent, uh, a direct con- even a direct confrontation, but one that is nonviolent and grounded in faith, then that kind of reactive behavior simply plays into the hands of those who want to provoke you. So, and if you're not well-grounded in your faith and in your prayers, then I find that it's much more difficult to maintain some kind of self-control. It's really amazing that in those circumstances and in those situations um, that I, I actually felt no anger at all. I, um, mm. There was just this kind of conviction that I was doing what I needed to be doing and, um, and, and kind of a, tr- a transformative uh, grounding in my faith that said I don't need to be afraid, um, that I am standing um, in a long line of people who have stood up to injustice in this world. And... Um, and that it's a, it's a Christian and moral thing for me to do. Um, and also to put, to put myself in place of um, those who have put their bodies on the line for so long. I mean, um, you know, African-American people and Native people and uh, gays and lesbians and others, they have been the ones who have, who have had their bodies beaten and killed and, um, and, and shoved aside and mistreated. Um, whereas me as a white woman, um, you know, I, I have not had that experience, so why not make it my business to uh, put myself in, in their place and so that they don't have to? Mm, and that's I think powerful. That, that is a very, well, it's a very, I think it's what we're called to do. I mean, it's what Jesus yeah. did for us on the cross. I mean, Jesus put Jesus' body there uh, instead of ours and, uh, and did it to show us that this is what sacrificial love looks like. And... Um, and so that is our model, and mm. um, 
I, and a lot of people, I do want to say, because a lot of people use Jesus' cleansing of the temple, which appears in all four Gospels, as a justification for some kind of violent, uh, righteous uh, anger. And I just would want to point out that that's the one instance where Jesus' uh, anger is on display, but it's because they were, they were offending and insulting God, that they were, this was God's temple, and they were defaming it, they were desecrating it by, by being money changers in the temple. So his anger was directed toward what is offensive to God. And so when I say to you, um, you know, that's what, that's where our focus needs to be. What, what angers God? And, and um, uh, that, then to me, that is justifiable anger. And again, it's how you go about expressing it. Um, which is not in, for me, not in hateful speech or in violence, but um, in, in bearing witness. And then, you know, moving forward from what we've had here this summer, it's actually doing the hard, deep work of restoring people to, um, to right relationship with each other and with God, and that includes those who, have, who feel so threatened that they operate out of hate. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, people who, are, who feel that they're being marginalized or pushed to the side in order that minorities and um, that diversity can be implemented in this country. And uh, so to make sure that, um, you know, whether it's housing or health care or jobs or whatever else, that all, all people have access to the goods and services and wealth of this nation. And I think that channeling anger into something constructive is, um, is the best way of, of, um, of dealing with it in a way that is not um, destructive, that does not harm people, but instead seeks to restore people to the wholeness of their humanity um, as, as God's creation. That's beautiful. And really, yeah, we have to let that emotion out uh, not just in the moment of it boiling over, but we could be letting it out for years and years just by understanding people, by hearing their point of view. One thing that I, I love is you were bringing up um, examples of Jesus. Like he lived in immense unfairness and uh and it's interesting to even see the apostles around him. Peter lashed out, cutting off Malchus's ear when it got right. tense, and and then had to hide and deny God or deny Christ thrice. And I mean, so as the humans around God were always struggling with it, and yet He loved them fully. He even turned over the keys to the kingdom to him. Right, run the run right. the run the church. But understand, I understand you're human. What what else can we learn? From um, from how kind of I guess Jesus handled it in the moment, being uh, you know in a trial with men that he knew were full of it, and um, you know, and he could have brought down angels or whatever to cleanse the temple, and he didn't. So, what else can we learn from our faith and and to bring our faith into the moment, into the very uh-huh. moment we need it, and, uh-huh. and, and overcome the fear. Right. Well, again, um, if Jesus is our model, Jesus time and again got away by himself to have a time alone to pray, to meditate, to, to strengthen himself for what it was that came ahead. Um, and, and then he was able to respond from that godly place, from, from um, a place that, that was single-focused. I mean, he never swayed from being about uh, healing people and restoring them to relationship with God, and the ultimate restoration with God came in uh, permitting himself bodily to be crucified. Um, so, and he never, I mean, 
there there are people who say, well, I, I'm not going to have uh, anything to do with these people over here. I'm not going to have anything to do with these people over here because they don't think the way I do, or I think they're wrong in the way they approach things. But, you know, Jesus not only dined with, with sinners, but he dined with Pharisees and with tax collectors mm-hmm. and with people who were part of the powers and principalities. So you can't, I cannot say, I won't have anything to do with someone whose politics I don't agree with or someone, even someone who who stands in direct opposition shouting uh, racial or or some other kind of epithets at, at uh, people, I would not ask my um, those who are the direct um, recipients of those insults to sit down and try to have a dialogue. But if we are, if we have been given this ministry of reconciliation, it does not happen by shouting at each other across a barrier or um, calling each other names. It happens through doing the deep, long work of having conversations, finding commonalities, and then finding ways to move forward. We may never agree on everything, but if we're all looking, if what we're all looking for is is a life where everyone has the same access to um, to the to the goods of this creation, um, then we have to be able to have conversations with each other and. Um, I'm not saying that any um, any white supremacist has been inviting me to dinner, um, but however, um, these are these but are you the would go. That are going to have to happen. Yeah. I probably would. I I would. As, but you know, again, I would have to be, yeah. make sure that Get ready. I have strength to do that and be ready and pray and and then to be willing to listen in a way that again is non-reactive because I can guarantee you the things that someone might say would make me very angry mm. in the moment but to be able to listen so deeply so as to respond from a place that says, I hear what you're saying, and here's what I believe. And, and again, and you can, right? And at that point, defend your beliefs, defend your ideas. Reverend Elaine Ellis Thomas, thank you so much. You are a light uh, in a dark world at times, and uh, we appreciate really just the lessons and the mere fact that you're, you are on the front lines and willing to step out. It's so in, It's so hard for so many to... To, to do what you have to do. And um, we appreciate your faith and, uh, m- I guess, most importantly, just your your desire to be uh, close to your God and to live what you believe. Dr. Elaine Ellis Thomas. <sighs> it's a hard thing, isn't it? Balancing what you believe, balancing what you go to every Sunday and talk about in church with your day-to-day life. And yet it's worth it, and it elevates humanity. We'll continue the journey to elevate all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. You know, that idea of unhealthy helping, it's real. It's everywhere, right? It's its in our marriages. It's in our families. A lot of us, we, we there's power. There's power when we can help. And again, we don't want to question if you're a good person. It's not about that. But there's a point, and we've talked about it on the show a lot with hovering parents, you know, helicopter parenting, the... Um, the inability to to let your children go, and we've joked about it on this very campus where 
we'll have faculty who will still be interacting with parents on their children's grades. Now, that makes sense. You know, if a child was involved in an accident and parents are just trying to save the semester. But at some point, folks, I believe a major purpose for our being on this great big ball of mud we call Earth is growth. It's development. And if you're a if you are a parent who is going to take away the opportunity for growth, you're robbing, you're stealing from your kids. These kids, we they need to learn how to be independent. And uh, the problem with uh, a, an enabling relationship or an unhealthy helping relationship is we keep our our children, our families, our partners, we keep the people around us dependent meaning they have to have us in order to function. And when there's two people that have to have each other, that is called two dependents or codependent people. And when you have two dependent people, then no one in the room is independent. The parent has to keep the child needing the parent, and the child needs the parent because they have never learned to do anything. It's codependence. And in the end, all the only person that's going to rob are those that are dependents. If you want a relationship to work long-term, you both must become independent of each other, meaning I don't have to have you because I know how to do this by myself. I'm independent of you. And when both of us are independent, we don't have to have each other, but we choose to be with each other, that's called interdependent. You can now create a higher relationship with each other. Codependent people cannot create an interdependent relationship. You are too, you're not independent. But uh, for example, I'm never, I fly a lot and I'm never going to, um, I'm never going to be able to just fly my own airline, right? I'm not going to do that. So I'm dependent on Delta Airlines. Delta Airlines is dependent on me, but really I don't have to have Delta and Delta doesn't have to have me. They can go find other people, and I can find other airlines. So by both of us being independent of each other, where I don't have to take Delta, I could take any other airline, we could go create something really cool together and have an interdependent relationship. But where you're both highly dependent, it's dysfunction all around. And so just be looking at your relationships. Are they independent enough? It's it's just pretty basic stuff, folks. Thanks for being here again. We'll be back. Uh, more ideas next hour. Stick with us. Great stuff coming up. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some some real-life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's you know it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden – You've got nothing but time to just you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. 
And one person may have been the kind of stay-at-home person and the other was out in the workforce and now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement. And so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently the divorce rate goes up about 16% when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in uh in the uh in the nest. Is that crazy? 16% increase simply because now we've got to work at it as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, You'd think like, well, no, duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's gonna look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market? Before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and, and the major you know breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home, what does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have. Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motorhome and become members of the Good Sam Club? <laughs> and travel all over the country, is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? By the way, that's a great conversation to have whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out. How much each other is going to need? How much space will your partner need every day? You got to figure out what your time is versus their time versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it, it goes south because now we, now what? 
Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're going to watch those shows all morning. Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that you know your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're, if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting, sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to – how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So, how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about... How we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire. And Andrew Steptoe brought it up. It's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical. Okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring, what do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say? At your funeral, what do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, this is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using. But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? 
Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, each, maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time, if you keep encroaching on their time or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues. And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the Coach's Corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the Coach's Corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. When we open ourselves up to criticism, some can be constructive and help us to improve, and yet other criticism... You know, it's just too harsh. It's damaging. How can we protect ourselves from the naysayers and the backbiters without compromising our self-worth? Well, with us today to talk about it is uh, Allison Abrams, who is a licensed psychotherapist in New York and uh, gives us some tips on how not to let negative comments affect our self-worth. Allison, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. You bet. What a great... um, what a great topic because it, it is easy, and I don't know if it's if it's happening more, but it seems like we live in a culture and a day and an age where everybody has an opinion and everybody wants to express it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it's true, and it's easy to to project those uh, feelings and opinions onto other people. Yeah, I guess part of the key is there. There's good. There's good feedback. There's I mean, there's there's good constructive feedback, um, and and there's I guess, unhealthy or less healthy constructive feedback. How do we know if what we're getting is constructive or not? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first um, first thing is to consider the source. 
um, consider who's giving you the criticism. Is this somebody that, um, is this someone that you know cares about you and wants the best for you? Uh, consider what the intention is. If it's if it is someone, a loved one, who wants the best for you, um, it, it could be helpful. Um, some criticism it is helpful. It helps us grow. It helps us learn. Um, and if it's somebody that, you know, if this is unsolicited criticism that you're getting from somebody that doesn't know you well and maybe doesn't have your best intention, your your best in mind, uh, something to consider as well. Yeah. Do you – I mean, I guess because that's, that's the interesting thing is – if you don't know the person, if then then I guess mm-hmm. you don't need to care about it. It's it's interesting, like having a radio show. Everybody has an opinion about what you should say, shouldn't mm-hmm. say, should do, or like even I've noticed like writing a book. It's a very vulnerable thing because everybody has an opinion from just uh, what you said to your content, or just you know the paper you chose to have in the book. I, I guess knowing yeah. knowing who they are, knowing who's bringing it to you matters. Um, but th- it seems like there's some of us though that deep inside of us we're so we're still so sensitive to feedback. It's almost like we'd rather mm-hmm. run from it than hear it. Yeah, absolutely. I think most people, most of us, are we care about what people think. We're all human. Um, nobody likes to be given negative feedback or um, be perceived as uh, as negative. Um, but, you know, it's, I think the more we work on ourselves and uh, feeling good about ourselves and we work on um, increasing our sense of self-worth, the easier it'll be to, you know, to kind of buffer yourself against these uh, people who are going to give you some not so nice feedback, and it's always going to happen. We, you can't avoid it. You can't please all the people all the time. No, oh, yeah, that's so true. And then, is that? I mean, I guess that's an important thing to remember too. As I'm somebody giving feedback, that uh, I mean, I, I probably ought to remember that this could be traumatic. This could be a difficult thing for the person I'm trying to communicate with. And I guess that's that's if I care. And I and I really want it to impact them. Then I would. Then they would probably be able to sense that I care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think um, if you sort of um, uh, prep, if you sort of let them know, you know, what your intention is to begin with. Um, I think that's important. You know, to so people know what your intention is because that that makes. I think that makes a big difference. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things, too, that we're, where we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, criticism and and kind of negative uh, feedback and, and destructive criticism coming out is in trolling on the Internet, you know, comments mm-hmm. made on your on your pages yeah. or your pictures or things. Talk to us about how mm-hmm. social media and what we should be doing as far as managing criticism that we find online. Yeah, yeah, that one's. That one's tough because uh, it's just making it easier and easier for people to be meaner. Yeah. Because um, you you can hide behind the screen, uh, so you kind of don't have to take responsibility. And as as humans, you know, we we, we sort of most of us have a sense of empathy. And if you're if you're saying somebody something to somebody in person, you kind of you see the reaction, um, and you, you it's a human connection. And I think most of us. to some extent, um, you care about the impact we're having on another. But when you're behind a screen and you're anonymous and you uh, 
uh, you don't really know who you're talking to or we're kind of dehumanized. Um, it's, it's a lot, it's much easier for people to just be, to be mean and not, um, not really thinking about the impact that they're making on somebody. And I think that was, that was one of the hardest parts for me when I started writing was thinking about, you know, you're putting yourself out there. You're making yourself vulnerable to, to what people are going to say. And you're almost guaranteed that there's going to be people that are going to be, that are going to say things that aren't very nice and very hurtful things. Yeah. So it's, it's hard at first. In fact, in your article, you and I guess this is a big part of it. Um, you you suggest that we take a break. Make sure we you you do take a break from the social media. Um, and, and what does the break give you? I guess just less <laughs> less critical feedback. Um, but there's got to be other benefits to not being so dependent on social media for your self worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's. Uh, it's a lot different when you have that human connection. Uh, like I said, you know, if you're behind the screen, um, you're, there's a difference there. Um, so it's, an, it's important to surround yourself with supportive people, with friends, people who care about you, um, and to, be, to make sure that you're still connected with the real world um, and uh, not get lost in the land of social media where anything goes. Pretty much. It's so true. And and maybe talk to your parents, talk to your friends. I mean, actually have a conversation where you can get more information with people that know more about you, that care more about you and and more data. Mm -hmm. Is it um, one of the things I I know that I've read about social media is we tend to, you know, everybody projects their best stuff on social media. um, And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of a it's it's a convoluted ideal that we, that we tend to see there is is it i when i think of um comment like i i rarely comment on people's stuff i might like like it put a heart on it or whatever and 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 make a you know like a like or a thumbs up or something but i i worry about it because i know i'm trying to maintain a professional decorum um but there are some people that get their self-worth, they get their identity from trying to tear others down. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you think about it, it's, um, it's sad. And, uh, you know, that's another way to, to kind of deal with it, to, to think about um, where, what this person must be going through. You know, if you have a need to put others down, you, you can't be that happy of a person you can't be um if you were secure with yourself and you were relatively uh, feeling good about yourself and happy you, you wouldn't have the need to do that yeah well so yeah kind you, of being you... grateful that you're yeah being grateful that you're not in that in that situation and it's hard in the moment but you know that is one way to think about it to kind of have empathy for the person that's insulting you it's kind of yeah just it's sad it's it's pitiful um let's do this allison we're speaking with allison abrams is a licensed psychotherapist in new york city where she specializes in depression self-worth women's health relationships and career she also is a blogger on psychology today and uh, we will continue the journey talking when we come back about how to be mindful and actually notice when the insults are coming in Uh, You know, so maybe you can then more intentionally do something about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're helping you be the good in the world. 
How to respond gracefully to destructive criticism. When somebody's giving you feedback, you got to uh, you, you got to know how to respond. You got to know how to handle it, to take it, and really how to place it in a context. And joining us to talk about that is Allison Abrams. She's an LCSWR and is a licensed psychotherapist in New York City and uh, continues to also write for psychologytoday.com, a wonderful blog there as well. Allison, thank you again for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. So one of the things you recommended in your article about how to respond gracefully to destructive criticism is be mindful and notice when an insult is actually happening. I guess, are there some people that aren't paying attention enough to know that they just were dissed? Yeah, I think especially when it comes from somebody that we know from a friend, um, or that that can happen too, Um and I think it, it could be, especially if you're sensitive to, to criticism, uh, it could be easy to sort of just hear it and take it in as fact um, and not realize that this may not be a fact. This may be coming from not such a great place. Um, and if you do kind of take it in as fact and not realize in the moment what's, what's going on, you know, you'll you can start to go down that rabbit hole of feeling bad and continuing the the negative self talk. Um, so it's important to know to learn to be more mindful and know when it's happening at the moment in the moment, so that you can access the skills, your coping skills, to to deal with these things when they happen. Yeah, it really is. It's like yeah, being aware of it so you can catch it earlier. Because we've all kind of had that moment where we're like, hold it. It's like a couple hours later, we started thinking about what they said, and then we're like, that was a diss. Um, one of the things, exactly. and it's interesting, a lot of times that you get the that you get criticized or critiqued, it seems like, is when you're really sticking your neck out there, when you're doing something that you wouldn't normally do, and or maybe that's when you're more most sensitive to it. Um, but you make a really interesting point using Theodore Roosevelt's famous speech that it really is the man in the arena that should matter more than the critic that's that's critiquing the man in the arena. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Um, the man in the arena may you know may be able to help us. Um, maybe you know this may be that type of criticism that we can learn from. Uh, they've earned uh, they've earned that um, that right to be able to you know give us some feedback and maybe help us help us grow. We can all grow. We can all. Uh, improve. Um, and, and, and if we yeah, want, if, and, that's it. That's one of your ideas, though, is go to the people that have been in the arena, not just those that critique everyone in the arena. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because, um, you know, when you do put yourself out there, you're, you're, it's, you're being brave. You're, you're taking a risk. Um, I think not everybody can do that. Not everybody puts themselves out there. And when when you do, it's you know you can be an easy target for 
people who may be dealing with their own uh, insecurities or maybe their own feelings about not being able to, to take risks. And, you know, there could be, you know, some envy there um, and some other emotions where it, it can be coming from. Um, so that's why it's important to sort of depersonalize it. Yeah. And there really is something to, I guess, and recognizing it's a human, it's a human trait to not love to be criticized. So if you, if you feel like you're really sensitive to it, no, you're just probably normal. Um, and then, mm-hmm. but then too, uh, there, there are different levels of criticism. One of your points as well is that you should thank them. I mean, and maybe part of this is figuring out a way that you could effectively thank somebody for what they're saying um, and, and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think if somebody really is coming from a negative place and is trying to uh, project their anger onto you, it, it's easy to sort of uh, feed into that. But I think by calmly, you know, hearing it and saying thank you for that, you're kind of catching people off guard. Um, You know, they may not expect that. And to sort of, to not not fall into that trap of not, uh, not feed the fuel. Yeah. Not, not turn it into a debate, not turn it into a, yeah, because, oh, you want feedback? I'll give you feedback. I mean, really, because it could Mm -hmm. turn into a fight and that's not going anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. It's like when um, when kids get bullied. Because uh, I used to work with kids a lot. Uh, it, you know, one of the one of the things that often worked for kids is just ignoring them, ignore the bully, um, as hard as that may be and as simple as it may sound. If you give in, then you're just feeding it, and in a way, that's what they want. Uh, and if you don't, then it's on them. Yeah, they, they got to keep the anger. That's so true, isn't it? And is um, I guess to what degree then do you discern uh, what part of the feedback you need to take and and what part you can just shed? Mm-hmm. Well, I think just really analyzing the feedback and you know looking at it and is there any truth to it? Is this an area that you can improve? Um, is this is this something that is going to make you better? That's going to make you. Um, that's going to help you in the long run. Uh, or is this something that is? Is this an attack on you? Is this something that you, you, you is not going to be helpful? Something that you can't change. Um, so to try to, to try to find where where you can find the try to find the the helpfulness in the comment if you can. Yeah, if it's there. What what advice, Allison, do you give to people that are thinking they want to give feedback? Um, that and and what 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 should they think through before they decide if they if it's worth giving the feedback or not? Mm-hmm. Well, first, I think maybe not to give unsolicited feedback, uh, but if feedback is asked of you, I think um, you know think about if it was said to you. How would you feel? Would would this be hurtful to you? Uh, would this be helpful? You know, I think that's number one. Um, and and really think about what your intention is. It really be this is where mindful mindfulness comes in, and really being honest with yourself 
and is what you're about to say, are you coming from a place uh, of, uh, from a good place? Do you want to help this person? Or is this coming from somewhere else? So is it going to help them or is it going to hurt them? Yeah. And because that's, that's part of the key, right? If I can sense you really care, then, then this will make sense. And I mean, I've always heard too, you could ask for, you know, ask if you would like some feedback or some advice, I guess, Mm -hmm. if, if, if before you give it in the end, um, they're only going to take the feedback if it seems like if, if it, if it's accurate, if they sense that you care and, um, really, if they know that you're into them, it, it, it's like relationship is seems like the number one key. What did, what's the one thing, Allison, as we kind of wrap this up, what's the one thing you would suggest overall if if you've received some feedback that you just that just kind of knocked you back on your heels? What's the number one thing that we could all do to, to, to get back on the horse and try the same thing again? I think self-compassion is key taking care of yourself and because it, you know, it could be very easy to get, to get, to feel knocked down and um, yeah, just being compassionate to yourself, uh, reminding yourself that I'm doing the best that I can. Yeah. And back at it again. Well, we appreciate you. Allison Abrams is her name and you can go uh, find more information about her on psychology today. She has a wonderful blog there and is currently practicing in New York city as an LCSW, a licensed uh, psychotherapist. We'll continue the journey here as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends. To the Matt Townsend Show. Man, if that didn't scare you enough, talking to Adam Levin. But the reality is it's taking over. And it's scary to think that it's monitoring everything you do. But uh, if any of you are into Netflix, you also are in trouble. According to a recent study from the group TDG Research... Did you know that the average Netflix viewer watches about an hour and a half of content per day? Ben's like, I'm like four times more than that. That's nothing. That's nothing, man. So, you know, Netflix, you pay about eight bucks a month and you get, you can go watch a bunch of shows. Never as many as you'd like. But... According to this uh, research, all of this time that we spend watching television, it's now surpassed other traditions, time-honored traditions like reading. So now we spend an hour and a half watching Netflix. Traditionally, we would spend about 49 minutes a day reading. Not anymore. 70 minutes a day eating. So we watch more Netflix than we do read or eat. That is pathetic. The demise of the human race. What is happening to us? Uh, worse, though, it's even more than we now want more Netflix than we even care about eating, having sex. Our teens are spending more time watching programming on Netflix than spending time with their families, hanging out with friends, video gaming, or playing sports. 
So maybe the big problem with the all this technology push, maybe it's not about your identity. Maybe that's to be expected. But maybe the scary thing is just the simple time that we're now dedicating to all of this technology. It's taking us away from what might matter most to us. To what? To go watch old episodes of, you know, 30 Rock. Is that what it's called? Or some of these shows. That's our that's our new love. But remember, and I think that was great advice from Adam. In the end, folks, you are the captain of your soul, right? You are the master of your life. And no doubt about it, Netflix is – it's interesting. It's – it's a great, you know, drug to just put yourself to sleep with. The problem, I guess, in the end is if it's costing you valuable relationships, if it's costing you, you know, your identity, if it's costing you your your confidence, your self-esteem, your self-worth. So just focus on it. I mean, again, we're not here to scare you to death. Just want to give you the, the real true blue information and see if we can't actually have some progress in our lives. Not to be feared. Don't fear it. Don't even just hide yourself from it. If you still want to go take advantage and and make it a part of your life, do that. But use your head. Lead it. This is what we're going to try to do is lead our lives here, right? And if we lead it, and there are great things you can watch on these shows as well. Spend some more time with your family. Have conversations about what you're watching. And whatever you do, don't watch anything with zombies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143.